Yesterday, as we were driving in the car, uh, Emily received yet one more of a bunch of political text messages that have started to go out. I don't know about you, but I'm already done with the political messaging, but I don't know about you. There are times where as the commercials come on TV and the text messages come into my phone that I just feel like it's hopeless. Have you ever felt that way? As you've looked at the events in the world and you think it's hopeless. We're going to be in Daniel 7 today if you want to start turning to Daniel 7. And the message of Daniel 7 is that even in the midst of what may look like hopeless, even in the midst of political turmoil and political disaster, really, Daniel's message is one of hope. Don't lose hope. We live in a broken world, but we need hope. And we have that hope through our God. So in Daniel chapter 7, we're going to be reminded that even though we live in the world, we're not of the world. Even though we live in the world and the world is broken, we have hope because we serve a living God. And one day our God is going to redeem all that is broken. Daniel 7 is an interesting chapter. I know some of you have wondered, what's he going to do when he gets to Daniel chapter 7? Because everything changes gears. Well, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you something that I didn't realize until a couple of weeks ago. The book of Daniel is not written in chronological order. And that kind of shocked me when I started reading Daniel chapter 7. We have to go back in time from Daniel chapter 6 at least 15 years back to the beginning, the first year of the reign of Belshazzar. Belshazzar is back on the throne. Well, not back on the throne, but we're back in time to the reign of Belshazzar. And as we look at this, what I want you to see is that Daniel is sitting in a Babylonian court, like a palace court, not like a a tribunal. Babylon is the empire that's ruling the world. Nebuchadnezzar was king, was emperor, Nebuchadnezzar is no longer king because now this new guy, Nabonidus, is king. But Nabonidus has decided to put himself into a self-imposed exile. Nobody actually really knows why. He just exiled himself away for a number of years, actually for 10 years, from 553 to 543 BC. And he puts his son, Belshazzar, in charge. The politics of Daniel's world are messy, ugly. Weird things are happening, and that's the world that Daniel's in. He's a foreigner in a foreign land, subject to somebody who's not even the real king, but rather the son of the king, kind of the brat son of the king. Times are tumultuous. And so what happens is a vision. If you were an Israelite at the time of Daniel... Hope was lost. The kingdom of priests that they had looked forward to in Exodus chapter 19 has now been completely overrun. All of the Israelites have been hauled off to Babylon and all hope is lost, or so it might seem. So let's read Daniel 7 verses 1 through 14. It says, In the first year, of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Daniel had a dream, 
and visions passed through his mind as he was laying in his bed. He wrote down the substance of this dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground, so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back, it had four wings, like those of a bird. The beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. And the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch. Because of the boastful words the horn was speaking, I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power all nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So what do we do with a passage like that? We'll read the next section in just a minute here. Well, I want to start off by giving you sort of a highlight, a point that summarizes it. And that point is simply that God's people may not be of the world, but that does not change the fact that we are in the world. We live in the world. We deal with the politics of our world. We deal with the people of our world. We deal with the fallenness of the world. We are not of the world. We are God's people. But that doesn't change the fact that he has us here and now. Verses 1 through 8 are actually about the politics of the ancient Near East or the Mediterranean world. I want to dig into verse 2 just a little bit because it will help to explain a lot of what's going on. What we see is the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. And we need to make sense of that. The great sea is almost certainly a reference to the Mediterranean Sea. So this prophecy is about the Mediterranean world, the ancient Near East is what historians, archaeologists would call this. 
The word for wind in Hebrew is ruach. Ruach means wind. It also means spirit. So we could just as well translate this as the four spirits of heaven, or not the four, but four spirits of heaven are churning up the great sea. In Babylonian mythology, specifically the Enuma Elish, which is a Babylonian mythological tale, the god Marduk, in order to establish himself as god, he has to wage war against the sea goddess Tiamat in order to tame the sea. In Babylonian mythology, God tames the sea. In Canaanite mythology, also would have been pretty influential at this time, Baal wages war against the sea god Yamim, also to tame the sea. Ancient Near East mythology had this strong tradition that the supreme god's job was to tame the sea. Here, Daniel counters that. It's not that God is taming the sea. That's a given. In fact, God is the one, the forces of heaven that are under God's control. God is the one who controls the sea, not tames it. He stirs it up. He brings things out of the sea. He puts things into the sea. The picture that we are supposed to get is that leaders do not rise and fall by accident. The events of our world do not occur by accident. They are under the authority of the God of the universe, the God who does not have to overcome the sea because he created it. That is the picture that we get in verse 2. Daniel sees that God is in control of the sea. Now, what happens in verse 3 is that four great beasts come out of the sea. What's going on is a reminder that God's people are called to submit to rulers and authorities. God is in control. And so he has placed rulers and authorities over us, people to whom we submit. And if anybody could complain about the people that he was under, it's Daniel. The first beast that comes out of the sea is a lion with wings as an eagle. Jeremiah had described Babylon as a lion in Jeremiah's prophecies. And Ezekiel had described Babylon as an eagle. Furthermore, Nebuchadnezzar, the king that conquered Israel, the king of Babylon that conquered Israel, if you remember back to when he went crazy and he lost it, he was described as having feathers like an eagle. And in fact, what happens to this beast, the feathers are torn off and he's told to stand up and act like a man. This is almost without a doubt a picture of Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel had been forced to submit to the rule of Nebuchadnezzar, but God wanted Daniel to know God was still in charge. God had brought Nebuchadnezzar up. He had told Nebuchadnezzar what he could do, what he couldn't do. God was still the one who was in charge. In fact, it's not just that God's people are called to submit to rulers and authorities. It's actually even broader than that. God's people may find themselves under a wide range of rulers. We may find ourselves, as we go through life, under an entirely different, wide-ranging realm of rulers. And that's the next two beasts kind of highlight that. The second beast is a bear. 
probably the Medo-Persian Empire. The bear is eating three ribs. The Medo-Persian Empire basically rose up to power by conquering three other empires. But I want you to notice that the bear is told to eat its fill of flesh. The bear doesn't decide on its own. Again, the rulers of Meda and Persia were not acting under their own volition. They were still subject to God. The leopard that comes next has wings that makes a usually swift animal even faster because leopards need even more speed, right? That's almost certainly the kingdom of Greece. Under Alexander the Great, the kingdom of Greece conquered the known world in three years. Swiftly moved across the world. Upon his death, Alexander's empire was divided amongst four generals or four kings. But again, look at verse 6. As we look at this beast, and it describes this beast, the end of verse 6 says, and it was given, was given authority to rule. Time and time again, as the beasts emerge from the great sea, the answer is that God gave them the authority. God gave it. It wasn't of their own. They weren't their own empires that made themselves. No, God gave it to them. But the news is actually kind of sobering because of the fourth beast. See, the fourth beast shows us that God's people may even find themselves under rulers who directly oppose the people of God. We may one day find ourselves underneath somebody who directly opposes God's people. And that's really what this fourth beast is all about. I'm now going to move us to read verses 15 through 28, because 15 through 28 really focuses on interpreting this fourth beast. So let's read that, and then we will talk through it a little bit more. Daniel writes, I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth, but the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying with its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from his kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. 
the holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and a half a time. But the court will sit, and his powers will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereign power and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. God's people may find that we are sitting underneath somebody that directly opposes the people of God. The fourth beast is troubling. In fact, Daniel is very troubled by this beast. I don't want us to spend too much time in the details of the fourth beast. But I do want to highlight some of the things that we know that we can interpret coming out of this. There is a coming for Daniel worldwide empire. That empire will be ferocious and will trample all those who oppose it. That empire is marked by 10 kings, but there is one king who will be unlike any other and will directly oppose the people of God. In fact, this king will directly oppose God himself. In fact, this king will even gain the upper hand against the people of God for a period that I think is probably three and a half years, a time, times, and half a time. So what does this all mean? How is this all fulfilled? Honestly, I'm not completely sure, but I do have a theory. I think this is actually speaking of a tribulation period. See, the Roman Empire was the next empire to rise up after the Greeks. The Roman Empire, though, never really was conquered. It sort of just morphed, kind of fell apart, kind of morphed. Um, You could make an argument that there's elements of the Roman Empire still established today. I think what's going on is a prophecy that one day there will be a ruler who stands up directly opposed to God's people. And I don't believe we've seen that yet. I believe that is still in the future. And this ruler will oppose God's people. And God's people will even be handed over to this ruler for a period of time. All hope will be lost. Except it won't. Because we know the outcome. And we know that God is victorious. So what do we do with this? How do we apply it to our lives Let me give you an action step. The action is really pretty simple, I think. We need to take a second. We need to acknowledge the reality. The reality that we live in hostile enemy territory. We need to acknowledge it, that we are living in hostile enemy territory. But all hope is not lost. In fact, We have not dead. Look at verses 9 through 11 more carefully. Leading into verse 9, verse 8 tells us, the horn is contrasted in verses 9 through 11 with the God of the universe. Verse 8 gives us a, a shocking and powerful image of a horn. But that horn has not always been. 
I want you to notice that. That horn is something that happens. It has not always been. The contrast in verse 9 is the ancient of days. You see, rulers rise, rulers fall. But the ancient of days is forever. The term ancient of days actually only occurs three times in the Bible in this passage. Verse 9, verse 13, and verse 22. The beasts each have a beginning and have an end. But the living God has no beginning nor end. The living God is shown to us in verses 9 through 11. And the living God is holy. Poetry is used to really enhance this image. We see the living God dressed in white clothing. The idea there is holiness, is separateness. The living God is entirely separate from creation, entirely above creation, completely pure, completely holy. The living God has white hair. Why? Holiness, but also age. That white hair is to remind us that he is the ancient of days. So all of you with white or whitening hair, wear it with pride. The holy God's hair is a reminder that he is eternal. The text picturizes purity. The text pictures the ancientness of our God. You can compare Daniel's description with Isaiah's description in Isaiah 6 if you want. But again, the picture is holiness, absolute set apart. The living God is entirely holy. But it's not just that the living God is holy. The living God is active. The throne has wheels that are ablaze. You don't put wheels on a chair in order for it to remain stationary. And that's actually the reality that we're supposed to capture out of this. The throne of God is in motion because God is active. He's not just sitting on his throne, observing the earth and saying, well, I wonder what's going to happen next, like we do when we watch a TV show. No, the living God is actively involved in the world, and that is the picture we're supposed to get. A river of fire is flowing out of the throne. Fire purifies, and the picture is that the living God is working on earth to bring it to its culmination, to purify and fix all that is wrong with our world. The statement that God is not dead is not just a static statement of existence. It is a statement of activity. Our God is active and working, and the living God will judge. The scene in the throne room reaches its culmination in verse 10. Thousands upon thousands are present. Court is about to begin, and the witnesses are ready to see how God judges. Interestingly, Daniel's name means God is my judge. And God is about to judge in this vision. The books are opened that the defendants might be investigated. Probably in context, the defendants are actually the beasts. The living God judges the rulers of this world 
to determine if they have ruled well? And we know the answer. The answer is no. There are times when hope seems lost in our world. But it is not. The living God is active and at work. I was reminded as I was thinking about this, one of my favorite hikes in Colorado is a hike called Hanging Lake. It's a a pretty steep hike, 1,000 feet in 1.2 miles. So it's it's a, a brisk hike up to the top. And you're worn out by the time you get to the top. But up at the top of this hike is a 25-foot deep lake with pure, crystal clear water. You walk out on a log and you look down and you think that the lake is two or three inches deep because it's so crystal clear. The hike is hard. The end is worth it. When we have lost hope or when we feel all hope is lost, Meditate on God. Look at Daniel 7, 9 through 11. Take a second and meditate on God. Verses 11 through 14 are really powerful reminders. Powerful reminders that Jesus is going to fix everything. See, 11 through 14 really remind us that God's people must remember that Jesus will fix all that is wrong. Jesus is actually the central character of verses 11 through 14. Let me start by stating, Jesus will depose and judge the rulers of the world. Jesus is the rightful ruler of the world as confirmed by the resurrection. When we celebrate in a month this day of resurrection, I want you to understand that what we're celebrating in the resurrection is the confirmation that Jesus is the rightful ruler of the world who has redeemed each of us. That's actually what the resurrection is all about. It's not just a cool moment. It is the confirmation that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. Jesus will judge. In verse 11, Daniel returns back to his vision of the beasts. These beasts represent the empires of the world and the rulers of those empires. In verse 12, we're reminded that God is sovereign over the empires of the world. He strips power from rulers as he sees fit. There's an interesting statement here. You'll notice the fourth beast is completely destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. Jesus will judge completely. Here's an interesting thing. If you look at 12, it says, the other beasts have been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. And historically, we know this actually to be the case. You see, the Babylonian empire fell, but it was not wiped out. In fact, Darius rules from Babylon. So while the empire fell, the people assimilated into the Medo-Persian Empire. It was stripped of its authority, but it wasn't eliminated. The Medo-Persian Empire fell to the Greeks, but again, the people assimilated into Greek culture. 
The Greeks fell to the Romans, but virtually everything about Greek society was preserved in the Roman Empire. That's why they call it Hellenism. Each of the previous beasts was stripped of its power, but it was allowed to live for a period of time. At the end, when Jesus ultimately judges, the fourth beast is destroyed. The empire of the world that is not Christ's empire will be gone. That is the hope that we look forward to, is the time when Jesus establishes his kingdom and the old kingdoms of the world are simply gone as Jesus reigns supreme on the throne. This is exactly what's described in Revelation chapter 19. And it is a realization that we can have and in which we can place our hope. But as we place our hope, I want you to recognize two things. One, it's going to get worse before it gets better. That's really what the fourth beast is all about. But two, it is going to get better. As we continue on in verses 13 and 14, the reason it's going to get better is because of Jesus. And I'm reminded that it is Jesus who has the credentials to approach the Father. Jesus is the one whose credentials matter. Jesus is the reason. Verses 9 and 10 were constructed to remind us of God's holiness as God being completely unapproachable, completely righteous, completely set apart. The beasts that emerge cannot stand before the God of the universe. The beasts are rightfully called beasts because they act completely inhumane. But there is one as the Son of Man who is allowed to approach the Ancient of Days. One who is completely humane. In the Gospels, Son of Man becomes Jesus' favorite title for himself. In fact, he uses it 78 times to describe himself. I think it is a direct reference to Daniel chapter 7. One as the Son of Man. One who is completely human, but yet has full authority to approach the ancient of days on his throne. How does this son of man come? In the clouds of heaven. The clouds of heaven are reserved for God alone. If you look here at verses 13 and 14, we have a deep theology of Jesus. Fully man, yet riding God's chariot, the clouds of heaven. Only God's allowed to ride God's chariot. So why is this one that's like a man riding God's chariot? Because he is God. God himself rides the clouds. The Son of Man is nothing short of God himself. And what does this figure, this Son of Man, this Savior do? He establishes an eternal kingdom. Verse 14 tells us that Jesus will establish his eternal kingdom and that everything will be under Jesus. As we celebrate the Easter play, as you read through the gospels and you see the title, Son of Man, 
Meditate on the weight of that title. When Jesus says he's the son of man, he is saying that he alone is worthy to approach the ancient of days. He alone is the eternal king, the one who will reign and set up his eternal kingdom. How do we know all of this? The resurrection. That he proved. I want us to look at 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28 in order to really capture this reality. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28 says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his foot. Jesus is the reason that we can have hope. So we must place our hope entirely in King Jesus. Daniel 7 is a reminder of our hope, of our king. It's interesting. I hadn't thought about Daniel 7 as really kicking us off into Easter, but it does. It is King Jesus that we are celebrating. That is the king of Daniel 7. That is the hope in which we trust. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for the hope that is Jesus, for the promise, a promise that you made to Daniel 2,500 years ago, a promise that we can hold on to today as we look in the rearview mirror and we see prophecy after prophecy, time after time, your promises are fulfilled. Time after time, the details line up just as you said. But we know that there is more to come. We know that one day, Jesus is coming back. One day, Jesus is going to establish his kingdom. And we will be part of that eternal kingdom. And so I pray today that we would place our hope our confidence entirely in Jesus. As we race towards Easter, give us a chance to meditate on the hope to which we look forward. In Jesus' name, amen.